0: This is Sandra Beck, and I'm so excited to bring to you this roundtable today. And the topic for today's roundtable is So You Want to Write a Book. Now, some of you want to write books to support your business to career, to impress your clients, to differentiate yourself from the competition. There's others of you that have something to say. You have something passionate, near and dear to your heart. Or maybe you just had this great grand idea that you think would make a great book. Now, I've had many of these ideas, and so I brought to the table today Four lovely women who are all exceptional in their industry. We have four ladies from the Talcott Notch Literary Service. It's an agency. And with us today is founder Gina Panateri. We have author, agent, senior associate agent, content strategy, the lady in the pearls, Paula (laughs) Mounier. We also have coming to us, despite how many kids do you have, Saba and how old are they <laughs> okay we've lost a little volume on her. That's okay we're gonna fix that later yeah. um but saba Suleiman, she's an associate agent and then we have tia mealy and tia mealy is a junior agent and an agent assistant so we kind of span the globe here of of people that work in this industry every day they see from the best of the best to the worst of the worst, and everybody that. starts somewhere. And I'm going to go to Gina first because you are a founder. Can you tell us a little bit about why did you start this agency? You know, what is it with you and books?
1: <laughs> I've, I've worked in in publishing for oh my gosh, now it's been about 35 years, and um, I've I've always been drawn to helping people um, with their with their written work. So I started out having a critique group in my house, um, and it just grew and grew and grew. Um, I really love taking a project that I can see the author's passion in, and then helping them to develop it to the very best that it can be. And then of course it's like having a baby when that finally gets out there and is published. It's, it's just so amazing. Um, and I really feel I, th- I think it's very important for the authors to have support and experienced guidance as well as somebody to, to fall back on when things aren't going very well and 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 maybe can get them, you know, started again. Um, somebody that they can take their worst moments to as well as their best moments. So, so this was all I think it's kind of like being a midwife and I've, you know, which I probably would have done if it wasn't for this. So. That's, that's I think we all come from that point. We love helping people. We're all, we're all people who love just getting involved and being um, supportive of, of other writers. So I think all of us write to some level. Everybody here has some, some creative spark, but this is for us really refreshing and it's, and it's encouraging and we love being helpers.
0: Well, and I, I, I'm so happy today that, Paula, that you're on the show with us because you have written one of my favorite books that Gina turned on to me, The Writing with Quiet Hands, and you have seen both sides of the fence because you are not only on the agency side, but you're also on the author side, and when I look at the authors that I've worked with over the last 20 years, whether it's on the radio side or ghostwriting or editing for them the writing process is, it can be agonizing. You know, I think the 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 way that, that it's portrayed, this novel just pops out of someone, you know, <laughs> like it just jumped out like this little minion. But the reality is it is rewrite after rewrite after rewrite, and you have to have a pretty thick skin.
2: Absolutely. The writing process itself is difficult enough. <laughs> she says, having just just received her second book, which I thought would never come out. It's a second novel in my series, And I rewrote it a million times and I, I actually despaired as many people do when they're writing book two of a series, but it's out now and yay. But, but it's not just the writing process. The publishing process too is, is tough, you know, and, and can be full of rejection. And, and so you do need a thick skin. It's interesting. I always tell people they need a, a magical skin so you need a, a skin that that will repel the rejection and the despair and the remorse and the regret and, and the writer's block and all that but it has to allow in humanity so that you can write so you, you can't develop so so thick a skin that you can't write and you're not affected by by stories and and people anymore so
0: you need a magical skin and it and it takes time oh, i love that magical skin and i think you know, let's talk about rejection right up front, because I think that's that's where I think a great literary agent is also not only a cheerleader, but like part psychologist, you know, part social worker, you know, all these things, there are rejections in this business. And it's probably one of, maybe next to acting, I'm out in Los Angeles, it's probably one of the biggest areas where you're rejected for what you think who you are, what you write, you know, all these things come into play. And I'm going to go to, um, I'm going to go to Saba. Saba, can we check your sound real quick? Yes. Can you? Hear okay, me? perfect. So Saba, I'm going to go to you because rejection, let's talk about that. What are some reasons that you reject someone regardless of whether it's a great story or it's well-written?
3: Okay. Um, so you're right in that. If it's not well-written, well, then that's a rejection that makes sense. Um, but there's so many factors that are a sort of going to this decision that unfortunately feel very difficult for the author to control. For example, you know, the topic they're writing about may be something that I happen to already have an author who wrote about. So I don't want my authors to compete with themselves um, on my list. Um, I'm just not personally compelled towards the writing or the topic or some part of the submission, regardless of the fact that it's well-written, I believe those are the rejections that sting the most because the craft is there. The research is there. The concept is well uh, pitched. It's just not something they picked the wrong agent in that sense. And so when I reject those submissions, I'm always very clear. I say, you know, this, you have something here. I'm just not the person for it. And I encourage you to please go pursue another agent because, you know, I think you have something here. And so I try to be a little bit more encouraging. I try to be encouraging all the time, but <laughs> in those situations, especially, uh, I like to make clear why I'm passing on the, from the project. Um, Other reasons, despite it being well-written, I would say, um, you know, um, there are so many other things to think about when you submit or when you write a book. Um, Of course, the assumption is when you have a talent and that is that you write well, that you can get published easily, but unfortunately, a book is a product, and we are selling this product. Right. So, we need for the manuscript to follow certain guidelines, whether it be um, by way of genre, because there are genre conventions to each genre we represent. And we do aware generalist agencies, so we represent adult fiction, nonfiction, children's fiction, nonfiction within you know, romance, and horror, and sci fi, and fantasy, and literary fiction, and everything in the middle mysteries, thrillers, and they all have. Have certain conventions that they follow within sort of the genre in the sense that, you know, there's a certain kind of word count, uh, a range that is pretty tight and should really follow those um, guidelines. Uh, the voices tend to be, tend to follow a specific kind of general convention. And so again, I may see a, a well-written project, but it doesn't sort of fit into its market. And I have to be able to evaluate that and assess whether or not I can sell it to an editor who works in these genres and categories. And so unfortunately, yes, being a talented writer who can write very well is obviously a key component to finding success in the industry, but you have to do your research, you have to study your category, your genre, really understand what's working in the market today and and write a book that would fit well on a bookshelf right now. Next to the authors, you feel are producing work that could be comparable to yours.
0: Ladies, I'd like to take a moment now to thank our sponsor because we wouldn't be here and on the air uh, if we didn't have great sponsors like Beta Brand. And I know you guys over at the Talcott Notch Literary Agency know that, you know, getting to work and deciding if Today is going to be stylish or comfortable, you know, that's a big decision. And thanks to Beta Brand's dress pant, yoga pants, you don't have to decide. And boy, we've got four of the greatest top literary agents in the business. You guys have a to-do list that never ends, and so do I. And, you know, when you're running from work to cooking dinner, you know, and I know one of you guys has a new baby, so that's a big deal. And, you know, trying to get dressed that is a way that's perfect for the home and the office and anywhere your day takes you. And you guys are having to go into Manhattan a lot. So, you know, you've got to hop on the train, hop in a cab, and you've got to be comfortable. And right now, our listeners can get 20% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com slash coachtalk. And that's 20% off your first order at betabrand.com slash coachtalk. Millions of women agree that these are the most comfortable pants you'll ever wear to work, you know, and and Gina, I know that you like to look stylish and comfortable, but still have a professional attire, and you shouldn't have to pick one, and Paula, you know, you are so rockin' fine with your best-selling books and being a literary agent, too. Whatever your style, Beta Brand has pants to match, and you can choose from dozens of colors and patterns and cuts and styles, like boot cut, straight leg, skinny, cropped, I mean, and there's just everything. You have to go to their website, betabrand.com, and check it out. You'll be so glad you did. I actually, am a big fan of their boot cut. And recently, I got a pair of these, like the faux leather front with the cool, sexy back. And those look so great paired with a black sweater. And they're so easy and comfortable. They don't bunch in the knees. They're, they're just so good looking. And I feel so great in them. And right now, like I said, our listeners can get 20% off their first order when they go to betabrand.com slash talk, Now that's spelled beta, B-E-T-A-B-R-A-N-D, betabrand.com. That's 20% off your first order at betabrand.com slash coachtalk. Go to betabrand.com slash talk for 20% off. You will be so glad you did. Now we were talking about, um, you know, how people take it personally. And I love what you said about, you know, it's not that I don't like your book. It's not that I don't like your writing. I have to be able to sell this. It's my job to look on the market and see what's saleable. And it's not a reflection of your writing, your work, whatever. You have to be able to sell it. I mean, I love it. I love that. You know, I think with sometimes with new writers, they take it as if they didn't like me. You know, writing is a very personal business. It's your intimate thoughts many times. And so with new, new writers to the industry, but it's also the same with my industry with radio hosts you know it 's not that i don 't like you i can 't market you i can 't sell you that 's not what i 'm able to do so actually it 's really on me for that one because you do do a disservice to someone if you you bring them on and you can 't sell them and at the end of the day it 's a product no different than a pair of shoes, a purse, a um, dental appointment you know there 's all particulars to all those things. You don't go to the dentist to get your foot fixed. So if you go to the agent who handles maybe psychological horror thrillers and you bring them a romantic comedy, as great as it is, what are they going to do with that? And I'm going to go over to Tia now. Now, Tia, you're our junior agent and you are more new to the industry than the rest of us. I'm going to say that very carefully, (laughs) but When you first started working in this industry, what were some of the reflections that you had about like aha moments of like, wow, this isn't really what I thought it was. Like when I realized that radio was a business like anything else and I had to be mindful of sponsors and I had to do the sales work. I was really surprised. I thought you just got up in the morning, talked into the microphone and then went back and, you know, slept and took a nap in your million dollar home. It's it's not (laughs) like that at all.
4: No, definitely not. And I feel like there's not really a listing like a job listing for an agency. So no one really knows what goes on behind the scenes. Like, um, I found out about agenting through school and we had I took this publishing class and we talked about agents but even in that class we did not go in depth about what an agent actually does. I feel like there's a lot more behind the scenes like a lot of people think and I was definitely under the impression when I was still in college that it's basically just reading you know just like reading and rejecting queries and accepting and Editing and things like that, but there's so much more. It's a business, um, and I think a lot of people don't realize how much business there is to agenting beyond just reading.
0: So let's talk about some of that business because we are in a creative business. We create radio, we create books, we create these things. But the at the end of the day, we still have to follow those digital guidelines or the brick and mortar guidelines of sales. It's demand do you guys find and you know i think i'm going to go to gina for this one do you guys find that when a movie like harry potter comes out all of a sudden you get like a million people who are like hey i can write a harry potter-esque thing i mean are there trends like that that and is that a good thing or a bad thing i'm going to go to gina first there are always trends
1: um i don't know why my (laughs) my video is not coming up um there's always trends and sometimes if you see a trend developing, yes, right after Harry Potter, we have 5 million stories about magical schools for kids and all that. Yes, that happened. But if you're writing to a trend, if you see a trend emerging and you try to write a book to it, you're going to be behind the curve. You're going to be way behind because by the time that trend has peaked, you know, it's, it's already, it's already on the downhill slide. So publishers who bought those trend books, those were bought two years ago. Those were, those were in their pipeline years ago. So you're way behind, you're, you're catching up now. And that's never the position you want to be in. You, although there, I can tell you that there are things that you should avoid writing because they're just, you know, there are things that simply aren't selling right now. And it's a super hard to try to sell ancient world historicals or, you know, um, we don't even, we don't want anything called dystopian anymore. You know, it's just, that's like a poison word. Um, Although I think it's really the genre still exists. So you have to you have to be aware of what publishers will not buy because they haven't been earning for them and they simply can't get them through board. But if you try to write to a trend, you're going to be behind, write something new, Break some break some, you know, some boundaries and, and go in a different direction than everyone else. Those are the books that are going to be the huge breakaway bestsellers, the ones that nobody has seen anything like that before. That's why Hunger Games was so huge. That's why Twilight Series was so huge. That's why Harry Potter was so huge. We hadn't seen anything like that before, and everyone wanted to, to read those because it was so new and was so fresh. Everything else after that felt derivative and we all, we know that it's true. Um, so, so don't write to trends, but do be aware, go on the boards, go on Twitter, go, go where writers are talking to each other and editors are talking about what they're looking for and you'll see what they're, what they're asking for, but they'll also give you a hint as to what you should avoid. Um, not to say that you can't sell those things that, that aren't, popular. I mean, I still do. It's just an uphill climb and you're not going to help yourself as a new debut writer to be doing something that's not right now considered economically or commercially viable for publishers. So just be part of the writing community and you're going to pick up a lot of information.
0: I'm going to go over to um, to Paula because, you know, you now have the other side of the fence. I'm going to ask you to put your author hat on just for a, for a moment. When you are pondering a story or pondering a new book what are some of the things that you do to make sure that like in hollywood out here anytime we get like a meteor movie there's going to be like two other media movies you know from from you know like one or the other production houses or you know you look at all the ripoffs all the time in Hollywood where there's one television show and it spawns like five knockoffs and maybe one is good because we like the actors, but more often than not, they kind of go by the wayside. So creativity in Hollywood is, is very commercialized. Now in your industry, it's commercialized as well, but when you're trying to come up with an idea that you think is great and viable, do you run it by a panel of people first before you write it, or do you squirrel it away like a little tender green shoot and let it grow?
2: Well, I have my, you know, my own agent, who's Gina, so I have the best (laughs) soundboard in the world, but, but, you know, before I was an, um, an agent, I was an acquisitions editor, and that's actually how I met Gina, you know, I acquired projects for publishing houses, and we couldn't go to our publishing board without what we call the USP, which is a marketing term that means unique selling proposition. So sure. what everybody in, in publishing wants is the same but different. So it's just like, insert bestseller here, only different. And how can you articulate that difference? So in Hollywood, they call it uniquely familiar. It's the same thing. It's basically, you know, here's your competition, you're up against the big guys, and most Readers would rather buy a book, 90% of them, from someone they know than someone they don't know. So if you're a debut author, you have to find a way to position yourself against these people to say, oh, my book is just like Lee Child, only different, and here's how to make it different. Here's the difference, right? So you have to be able to articulate that difference. So I think that's what a lot of people have trouble with. They don't understand what about their project is special. And why anyone would buy it. And that's what you have to figure out. So as an acquisitions editor, I spent a lot of time thinking about that whenever I pitched a project. And now as a writer, I think about that. The same thing. How can I make my work different? How can I pitch my clients so that the editors understand, number one, that yes, it will sell because here's a whole slew of comps selling in that same category, giving the readers this particular kind of experience that the readers want. But here's how it's different and better. So I think you have to think in those terms, you know, sometimes it helps to think who do I want to be when I grow up? So I knew I wanted to be Julia Spencer Fleming. Who's one of my favorite mystery writers. And I thought, but I have to be different than Julia Spencer Fleming. So how can I be different? And I thought, Oh, I'll be junior Spencer Fleming with dogs. So (laughs) I like canine mysteries that are a lot, you know, in the same vein as Julia Spencer Fleming, but with, with dogs. And I was really tickled when one of the reviewers from Library Journal said, you know, you may think of all those books like, you know, Marty Mitsushima, the other canine misdemeanors, but really, really reminded me of Julia Spencer Fleming. I'm like, yes, right? So think about, as a writer, you have to think about who, who are my favorite writers? Who, who's my favorite competition? How can I emulate <sighs> them but make it different and make my projects different, right? And that, that's the key, I think, because I have to have something to pitch.
0: There's nothing new in selling, you know, when you look at selling, you know, whether it's a, you know, I worked in, in residential real estate in Beverly Hills for, for 15 years. And it was funny because we would walk around these gorgeous homes and they'd say, oh, well, this is a, you know, a, a colonial, but it has this, or, you know, this is a, you know, and, and that's salesmanship. I mean, we want a familiarity and then we want a twist or we want something, you know, that allows us to get excited about it. So it's not the same old thing. Now, I'm going to go to Saba. Saba, when you're when you have an author that sends something to you and you there's a kernel of what you think is like amazing in there, something that you can grow. And you go to that author and you suggest changes. Is there part of you that goes, "Uh-oh, this could really blow up in my face?" Because <laughs> that's happened to me before when I've had to tell people, "You know, I like you, I think you've got great talent, but your show is just going to alienate people." It's it's just people are going to get angry and unless you want to be the Howard Stern of motherhood, um, you know, we we've got a problem. So, how do you break news like that to someone and What's going on in your mind on um, like I like to know what's going on on the on the other side of the fence so- okay, we're losing audio can you can you come towards your mic maybe? okay, so we're gonna go we're gonna bring that question over to Gina because we've we've lost sound on Saba.
1: okay, all right um so the the question you wanted to 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 talk about is like you know how do you discuss with the author like the the reason why their story isn't going to work or
0: well just that you want to work with them because you think there's a kernel in there but
1: but there's it needs work but it needs
0: oh I, i i usually i do this with
1: a lot of the books that i make offers on i'm like i really really like all of these things about it. However, and I'm, I'm, usually, I'm usually very honest with them, I think that we're going to need to rehaul these elements because either it's making one of your characters unsympathetic who needs to be unsympathetic, or this is simply unbelievable, or this, is, this part has simply been overdone, it's oversold, and it's, it's not fresh anymore. Um, so when I, ha- I always have a conversation with somebody if I'm offering them representation. I said, let's, let's set up a phone call. Um, and we'll talk about my vision for the book and see if it aligns with your vision for the book. And, and it might, and sometimes they tell me I've, I've been worried about that. You, I believe that you, you nailed it. This is exactly what I should be doing. It feels really good. Um, if they disagree, then I'm okay with saying like, well, maybe we're not meant, you know, we're not, we're not a love match. Um, because I want both of us to have the same vision. I don't want you doing something that doesn't feel organically like correct to your story because you know it better than I do um but I go through the story I go through the characterizations the dialogue you know, even the setting sometimes and we've had books bounce because the setting wasn't selling um and we're like okay well you have to reset this book you know in in someplace else it shouldn't be in the city it should be rural or vice or you know um and we, we go through those and, and the, the author, you know, I usually give them a few days to go off and think about it or, but sometimes they come back right away and they're like, I was always bothered by that myself. And you're just affirming to them that their instincts as a writer were correct the whole time. And they knew that they'd gone off on the wrong track. So, and revision process after we take a book on is often very lengthy, sometimes multiple drafts over a period of of months or even a year or more. Um, until we all feel it's the absolute best story, the most saleable story that we can possibly pitch at that point. Does
0: that, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, okay. I can. we can talk a little bit about, you know, um, when when somebody puts a story together, everything is fluid mm-hmm. until it's not. And I think when you are first writing your story and you're coming up with an idea, It's helpful to have, um, I don't know what you guys call it in your industry. We call it a treatment. Um, You know, it's a two-page, three-page, I think you call it a synopsis in your, or Um, in your industry, that helps guide the writer. But then I've interviewed so many authors that are pantsers, you know, these fly by the seat of their pants and they sit down and it just pours out. And I want to go over to Paula because she's sitting over there with a little grin on her face. Paula, are you a planner or a pantser when it comes to creating your work?
2: Well, you know, a lot of, a surprising number of writers are pantsers. I'm always kind of astounded by that, because I started off as a reporter, and I knew I had to go do my interviews, do my research, I had to have something to write about, right? And so the idea of just sitting down and winging it kind of terrifies me. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually wrote a book on plot for people so they can help plot themselves, because I think most people fall sort of in a camp, right? They, They kind of plot, they have an idea where they're going, and then, you know, they pants the rest of it, or they think they're a pantser they really have done more thinking about it than, than they say they have. You know, I think the best approach is both because I always write very detailed outlines because I, you know, I'm neurotic, but, never follow them. You know what I mean? Uh, So eventually I, I, I detour, but you know, you can pants it for the first book, but after that, your publisher wants to know what the second book is going to be about and what the third book is going to be about. And so to get that next contract, you have to write that synopsis or at least enough of a pitch that they can say, okay,
0: this makes sense. Go for it. Now, Saba, let's check your sign sound again.
3: Sorry, I'm not sure what happened. Can you hear me
2: now?
0: Yeah, now I can hear you. So let's talk a little bit about if you have an author that's a pantser versus an author that's a plotter, how do you you work with a creative like that? If they're just, everything's going to be fly by the seat of my pants and just show up, is that something that makes it more difficult for you to work with?
3: So... I typically sign authors based on a novel or a submission, whatever it may be, a collection of essays that they've submitted to me that I believe I can sell in in some basic format of it. It would just need one, a revision that I believe they can do. And so the, the, the actual material is already there. Whether or not their process, their personal process is to plot or to pants doesn't really figure because I have that material and I know it's saleable and it, it, it is, um, it is strongly written and they just have to tweak it and revise for it. Now I have clients who are now writing their second books and their series, but at that stage, they've already signed with an editor and a publishing house at agents don't typically involve themselves with when their clients are writing their second or third books, just because their editors already, ha- they have editors who are invested in the series and will help them plot and, and, sort of envision the process and ask them sort of probe them, ask the right questions kind of ensure that if, for example, the client is more of a answer that they, they will hit relevant plot points that there is some kind of um, goal in terms of uh, deadline and that sort of thing. But for me, it's never really figured in my relationship with my clients because I already have the book that they, that they sent me for which I Mm -hmm. sign them. So, you know, they've already created it, whether or not they plotted it or pantsed it, it doesn't really make a difference to me. Um, that being said, we have, I have also worked with some of my clients to write fresh books, mm-hmm. say in the situation where I haven't been able to sell their first book, the one that I signed them on. Typically I ask them to send me some kind of an outline. It doesn't have to be thorough point by point. It can just be, you know, basic kind of points, like where, what's the progression of the story. So that I can determine whether it's a story I can sell that I understand, that I feel passionate about, that I feel that they can write well, given their talents and their expertise. And then I like to encourage them to, you know, be true to their own process, mm-hmm. write a draft, make sure that it's not just the first draft, because no writer on this earth can produce a first draft that's actually worth going to publish, including our favorite best-selling authors. So, you know, I ask them to go to their writing groups or critique groups or, you know, set it aside for a while, go back to it. Give me something I can work on. And I usually like working on complete drafts and not say, send me the first chapter and we'll go chapter by chapter. Just because I know and I have seen from personal experience that if you don't, the process of writing a novel in itself teaches you about plotting and -hmm. and then you sort of find yourself dialing back to chapter three when you're in chapter 7 and like, actually, I did that thing wrong. I need to go back and change it. And if I were to go through each chapter, chapter by chapter with my clients, it would just make no sense. It would just be a lot of wasted time. If, for example, they decide something they did in chapter three where they, you know, murdered Mrs. Coxley was wrong. You know what I mean? Like they should have mm-hmm. done it a different way. And so I always ask them to go through the process once, however they want to, they want to pants through it, That's fine with me, as long as I have a working document that's full that I can that give them some actionable feedback on, and so in that sense, I guess um, I don't really like to interfere very much in terms of how they like to write, but I do require that they give me something I can work with that's not just word vomit. <laughs> essentially.
0: Well, and I think, you know, one of the things that I learned, um, I went to journalism school at Northwestern before I went to business school there, and I was astounded about how much I didn't know. You know, the concept that I would take a whole semester of grammar, you know, that sounds crazy. You know, you just think how many how many things are there to know? Well, there's a lot. And then when I read Paula's plot book, um, called it up, Paula, show everybody your plot book again, because that's a really good one. Um, I actually owned that before I talked to Gina and recommended your other book. Um, But there's so much to know. And when you master these fine skills, Then your creativity can be unleashed because I can tell you in the beginning, you know, and when I work with, um, I worked mostly with PhD thesis candidates, there's a formula, there's a structure, there's a word count, you know, there's all these things that have to be in there. There are certain things that have to be in your first chapter. Well, once you master those things, it's almost like you can take a breath and let your creativity flow. Because I think the first time around, and I'm going to go to Gina for this, the first right through, there's so much to remember. And then after you've completed it, you've mastered kind of like, you know, like the basics, like you got the stroke down in your swim, you got the kick down in your swim, and Mm -hmm. drafts two, three, four, or books five, six, seven, whatever they are, Seem to flow more quickly. So I'd like Gina for you to talk a little bit about that process.
1: The first book is a learning experience. Um, it, so yes, the the author often is that's the that's often the trunk book or the mistake book, um, and they they learn how to master their craft in the course of the first book. Um, yes, we usually see a smoother passage through the second. Now, now the the, the difference can be the second book in a series, which can often derail people. We have many, many problems with the second book in a series, often because the author put all their ammo in the first book. And now like we signed three books. What do I do for the next two books? You know, the, so you often have to like really expand on the world. So, so you'll see this and the author often becomes panicky too, because the first book they spent two or three years writing four years writing. And now the author, the editor's saying like, yeah, I want this one in eight months, by the way. Um, so you're going to have to repeat that process, but you're going to have to really cram it in there. Um, but usually they've got, they've, they've, they've gotten off the craft. They've, they've learned more about their characters. They've, they've, mastered the world building they've done those multiple drafts where they kind of smooth that out and it's and it's so much easier from that point forward that doesn't mean that um we don't get involved and the editor doesn't get involved or they take their hands off the wheel at that point for the later books there's still lots and lots of craft to be developed we expect our authors and as readers we expect the authors to get better and better with each with each book um, so we're still working on craft we're still working on plumbing the depths of the characters to pull out more information. Um, and I love watching my authors get better from one book to the next to the next. And I see it's like they're growing, you know, right in front of my eyes, their, their mastery of the skills. So it, it, really the, the education process is not finished when you get that first book out to, out to press because everyone's going to expect you to be even better for the next book. There's a higher bar to clear. So, you know, you're going to have to keep sharpening your skills. It doesn't matter. One book down doesn't get you anywhere.
0: <laughs> well, and, You know, interesting enough, um, I do a lot of shows with Angela Breidenbach, who's the Can, the Christian Author Network president, and she's always coming to me with a new book to read, you know, on plot, a new book to read on, you know, story and structure or character building. And I did a bunch of shows with Joel uh, Fotonos and when he was over at Tarcher Penguin, and he said something very important to me. He's like, Sam, he goes, you know what? Just write it. You can't fix it if it's not written down. You know, you just have to put it down there and start. Because I think a lot of us feel like Snoopy, you know, sitting on top of the doghouse, you know, with the typewriter and the white paper going, okay, you know, now what? Now what? Nothing anybody puts down the first time is super great. But one of the things that I find that's a change in the industry that I've experienced is 20 years ago you sat down, or at least I did, I sat down with a typewriter or a word processor and I know like Tia and Saba, you probably don't even remember those things. For the rest of us, you know, I learned at Northwestern, they required us to write our articles on a typewriter, a manual typewriter so that if we were ever somewhere, I don't know how this would happen, but, reporting somewhere we learn to dictate our article over the phone or type it on a manual typewriter where we're somewhere for whatever reason we have no electricity no computer no whatever mm-hmm. but of course there magically happens to be a manual typewriter laying around <laughs> which to me is always very funny but the advent of technology has brought on all these different writing programs you've got microsoft word you've got script- <coughs> Um, I've done lots of reviews on my radio show. I've been given, you know, free of these. And when I sat down to write my, my recent book, I was so overwhelmed because I didn't know what technology to choose. And I ended up going to my old original Microsoft Word habits. And then, you know, thankfully Grammarly came in and, you know, cleaned up some things that I'd forgotten. But Technology has changed a lot of things and I think people can produce things faster. It doesn't necessarily mean better. Who wants to handle the tech question? Oh no, we got crickets. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tia, Tia, you want to handle it? Or?
2: Yeah,
0: it Tia, Tia yeah. talk to me about tech. I mean, it's overwhelming out there. You have apps that are story creators. You've got these name generators. I mean, It's phenomenal how many tools there are out there.
4: Yeah, I am in the camp that I love it. Um, I love the technology. There are so many different, like you were saying, apps that you can use to write. There's apps that you can use to learn about story structure. Um, I think it's great. Um, And I think the old way will totally work for some people, but there's also new programs Um, where you can separate out your chapters and include synopses and I think technology has given us these structured ways of writing which are really helpful for some people Um, and they help with organization and when you make mistakes you can delete it instead of having to start over Um, so that kind of things are really great but yeah, I I love all the technology and all the different apps and things. I definitely use a lot of them myself.
0: Well, and I think one of the things like I've been using Scrivener um, because it. In the old days, I used to write my ideas on my chapter ideas on um, what do you call those index cards. <laughs> I don't even know if anybody uses those anymore. And I would have them color-coded. And I would have my I would always go out with a new project for a client, buy a new pack of Sharpies, a pack of white index cards, and I would be, you know, working everything that way on my kitchen table. And Scrivener can do that on a on a job board, on your your computer. And I think it's just a different way of of articulating the things that we need, whether you're digital, whether you're book form. I still go back to if you're writing books, though, you need to be reading books. And it's phenomenal to me how many authors come to me with a book that they want me to read and review on their radio, on my radio shows, and I get their book and I read it. It looks like a real book. Nice cover, glossy, the whole thing, because they paid some, recently I had a guy who said he paid a company $20,000 to To do this book. So, when I started asking him some questions in the interview, and of course, the interview didn't air because he did not read his own book. (laughs) He had not written it, he had not conceptualized it. The ghostwriter wrote it, the marketing company branded it. They interviewed him for probably a cup of coffee because this guy couldn't sit still even for my interview, but he didn't read his own book. Wow. And Um. technology makes that possible. It's possible for you to dictate into a computer, to hand it over to a ghostwriter. And I, in my 20s, I was a ghost for some really popular um, writers. And it was amazing to me how little involvement they had in with what I wrote. As long as I researched it, it was backed up. I obviously can't name these people, but they went on to be, you know, best-selling self-help books. And they were my words, not their words. And I could tell when I would see them in the TV interviews, they'd ask a question and they'd be this. And they start (laughs) to shift a little bit because they didn't remember what I wrote or what the other ghost writer wrote. And one of those things, if that happens, I think everybody loses. I mean, the nice thing is the content is good. It's, it's, it's important content for the reader, but have you guys, have any of you ever had any experience with an inauthentic writer where you know they didn't write this or they didn't produce this or this wasn't their their thoughts or their words? Or does that just ring a bell with you right away?
2: Well, I was an acquisitions editor for nonfiction and self-help for many years. And so...
0: Paula, oh, my stuff probably went across your desk.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And a lot of those words in those books were mine, <laughs> not, not the writer's. Um, but but that's more I think with nonfiction with experts who sure. who need their name on a book but they're not up to writing the book and or yeah. even if they wanted to they don't you know they weren't wouldn't be up to doing it I think that's a little different I think with fiction you know people are looking for that voice
3: yeah.
2: and it's hard to find that voice with a ghostwriter and the level of craft is very high the expectation is high you have to sell that book based on the finished product not with a proposal the way you can sell nonfiction. <laughs> So I think all of us are looking for that voice. We're looking for that feeling you get when you open the new hardcover by your favorite novelist and you start to read and you think, "Ah, oh, I'm in for a good ride." You know, it's right there on the page. There there's a an intangible confidence that you're going to have a great reading experience. And that I think is hard to pull off mm-hmm. with a ghostwriter. I think you need that you need that writer, an authentic writer. And I think an inauthentic voice is it's just often more, more than inauthentic. It's just not bad. It's not good. It's not a good voice. It's not a strong voice. It's not a compelling voice. And that's
0: what we're all looking for because readers love that. They'll follow a compelling voice anywhere. So let's talk about compelling voice. Gina, I'm going to go over to you because mm-hmm. you're nodding along with us yeah. here. Yeah. You know, because these are things I think in a digital age, I think of some of those famous writers that I'm not going to name, but I loved her books. And when we found mm-hmm. out that she had ripped off another romance author sometimes lifting scenes and you know I was actually heartbroken I actually started to cry because I had loved those books so much and so what makes a compelling voice oh you know there's not any
1: one thing it's Mm -hmm. and you should never imitate someone else because you love their voice so you want to write just like them but a compelling voice is one it has a beautiful flow, and it doesn't necessarily have to be lyrical; it can be bold and masculine. it can be very spare um but it has to feel authentic, it has to be consistent, it has to bring us into the story in a compelling way and so that we forget everything that's going on around us. We need to you know completely blank out, miss our subway stop um the the voice of this the voice of the story we hear it in our head and it feels it's almost like you can hear the characters speaking to you. Um, and that takes some work to find your own voice. And it should be consistent because as Paula was saying, readers come to look for that. They'll, they'll look for their author that they love and they want that voice. They want they they're you know, and it can be someone who just, just, has beautiful metaphors and, and it just strikes you right and you, and you write them down and you remember them forever. It can be somebody who's amazing with dialogue and you're like, yes, that's exactly how that person would sound. That's how all of them would sound. And you have to discover your own strengths as a writer. Dialogue may not be your strength. Figure out what your strong point is and emphasize it as much as you humanly can. Of course, you need to work on developing all of those. You need to have the action scenes. You need to have the dialogue. You need to have the emotion. But if you know that something is something you do super, super well, and there's lots of authors who are great with dialogue, Lay that up as much as you humanly can. That's your strength. Learn what your strengths are. Learn what your weaknesses is. We all, all of us have a weakness as right. There's always a weakness. You know, de-emphasize that as much as possible, so that you can kind of bury those to to whatever degree you can while you're working on on, on getting better. But um, voice is something, and like, it, but it has to be consistent. It's something that it's it's a little bit undefinable, but it's the, the flow and the rhythm and the the the, um, the word usage. Um, that all develops into creating better characters, better settings, better, you know, better conflict, more believable emotions. Um, and it is something we look for and it's hard to define. And authors are very often very frustrated that they don't understand what we're talking about when we say voice. But if you say, OK, who's your favorite writer? Why do you like them? You'll often find it's issues and elements of voice that they were attracted to. So I know it's, it's, it's kind of a little ephemeral. I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: Untangible. You know, it, it, it's, yeah. and it's, it's very much the same in the radio business. Well, you I'm sorry about voice. that. And it's it's not the, you know, the, it's the cadence of your voice. It's your word choice. It's your, you know, it's your everything. It's your personality that comes through, I think, when we talk about voice. Now, there's some writing contests out there, and there's some different writing programs like the um, Nano, I don't even know how to pronounce that. What's that Nano remote What is it? Nano Remo? Nano Remo, Yeah. Okay. What do you think about those things for beginner writers? Is it something that that you think is is valuable? Who would like to take that? And we're not we're not criticizing the, the project, but it's it's to, to sit down and expect to write a novel of fifty thousand words or more in one month. You know, maybe if that's all you have to do, you don't have kids, a job, a husband, a dog, a a need to eat or sleep, you know. (laughs) Um, What do you guys think about those things? Who wants to take that? Um, So to speak to what you said earlier
3: about how you receive that piece of advice about just having that word, those words on the page is sometimes just often the most difficult obstacle for writers to overcome. And I think that's basically what NaNoWriMo focuses on is just to get writers to sit down, get those words out, look at a word count, hit that count every day or every two days, whatever your, whatever your uh-huh. process is. By the end of the month, you're accountable for a certain amount of words. And that's kind of how the program works. And it really, I think one of the most valuable things about it is that A, you you do it with a bunch of other writers and mm-hmm. accountability is always really useful because writing is such a solitary activity. And, you know, once you, it, it there's this inbuilt community with Remo, So you can sort of check in with your local Remo because they actually often have physical meetups in your local libraries, or you can look online on Twitter or other social media um, platforms where they use hashtags and say, Hey, I'm on day 17 and I haven't met my goal. Who else? Can I get some inspiration? Can I get some encouragement? And so that often helps with getting yourself motivated to get those words done. Now, I agree with you. I think taking it to its extreme in that I have to have 50K done by the end of the month is not necessarily the best goal, but I think going in with a healthy attitude of, I'm going to give it the best shot I can. I do have some constraints with regard to my schedule and other responsibilities, but I have friends who are doing it. I'm going to try my level best to do it. And it's often very much more manageable to write a whole novel when you have some kind of external goal Mm -hmm. motivating you to do it. And this contest, or it's not really a contest, it's more of a program. It sort of gives you that push often when you feel you need it most. So in that sense, I would say, bring it on. It sounds like a great idea. Mm -hmm. And if it helps, it helps. I know a lot of authors who have published their NaNoWriMo novels. I mean, after it went through many, many iterations of revisions, of course, but um, they got those words on the page. And I think that's definitely worth um, signing up for something like NaNoWriMo where it's just going to help you get through that really difficult of getting those words on the page and then after that you can go back and feel as though you did it you wrote a novel now let's get to revising it and that's the next step
0: well and i think that's one of those things you know i ran after my mom passed away i ran a breast cancer marathon here in los angeles and i started preparing for that you know a, a year in advance and i you know was in the park running and i was but honestly if i didn't have to show up at dodger stadium April whatever 4th you would have to be chasing me with either a giant bear or a gun to get me to run that much you know so having this artificial structure put around your goal setting especially if you're a deadline girl now paula you have a background in journalism like i do so you get that deadline if you tell me the word count the column count the inch count whatever it is you know i'm going to hit that so knowing who you are as a person some people don't like deadlines. Other people love deadlines. I personally am a deadline girl. I will procrastinate till the sun goes down up again five times. But if you have a deadline, I will make that deadline like right on target. So I think it's about knowing too who you are as a person. I'm going to wrap up our episode today. And I want to thank the ladies from the Talcott Notch Literary Service, uh, Gina Panateri, Paul, Paula Mounier, Paula Oh, this is just awful. I'm going to have to re-record this. So Saba Suleiman and Tia Mealy, thank you guys so much for being here today. I think this was a great round table for people who just get up one day and so say you think you want to write a novel. Here we are. We'll be back again next week. This is part of a series. So we're going to be having these episodes. Check us out on iTunes. Check us out through Google. You can find us through anywhere podcasts are delivered. We'll be back again next week.
3: On behalf of Sandra Beck, we want you to get out there today to make more money with less time and effort so you can live the life you want. Tune in next week for more tips, tricks, and techniques on
1: Coach.